Good morning, everybody. Uh, today's scripture is 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 11 to 13. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you, if you w- will walk in my statutes and do- obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to, your, to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. I am especially glad to be in front of you this morning. I remember a lot of dates in my life, and I would like to share this one with you. October 30th, 32 years ago, um, I was an 11-year-old stuck in a civil war. I didn't know where the rest of my family was, stuck with my brother. We were in hiding at that point almost a year, one meal a day, and peacekeepers finally reached my neighborhood on this day 32 years ago. And I thought, man, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to make it. Um, when they came, we saw their uniforms. I almost wanted to give them a hug, but they were not in a hugging mood. <laughs> they were all dressed up in their, you know, their stuff, and soldiers are very different. Men are very different. Uh, people are very different in war. Um, I'm wearing this shirt today. This shirt is made in Ghana, the, the West African country that I was fortunate enough to be taken to as a refugee. Uh, so. I consider them, I don't know if I consider Ghana my second home, the United States my first home, or Liberia my first home, or <laughs> what's my second home? I'm just God's child, just, just roaming the earth <laughs> and, and loving life, amen? <laughs> amen. Uh, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, Lord, I'm just so grateful. Uh, just for life. Um, grateful to be here. Grateful for my family. Grateful for just your, your mercy. Um, in my life especially, but I'm sure there are people out in this auditorium who are just as equally as grateful to be alive, um, to be able to praise God, to be able to live. Um, Thank you. Lord, as we embark on on our study of the word this morning, I pray that you will use me just as a mouthpiece um, for your precious word, God. Whatever preparations I've done in the Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray that you you just bless it, O Lord. Uh, if there's one person that needs to hear one thing out of this sermon, whether it's a challenge, a rebuke, an encouragement, or a teaching that will further along their journey uh, with you, I pray that you make that very clear this morning. I am grateful for all that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. I didn't think I was going to start crying already. Making sense. We are in 1 Kings uh, chapter 6. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. But how do we make sense of a story? When you read a story or read kind of an autobiography or a biography, authorized or unauthorized, how do you make sense of the story? When you read a story of a great king or a great president or a great activist, a great leader, how do you make sense of their stories? What's included in their stories? I don't want to get too morbid here this morning, but what's going to be in your story? What someone's going to tell all of our stories at some point in our lives? What will they include 
and what would they not include? What details will they add? And what details will they leave out? In the book of 1 Kings, it's a book aptly titled because it represents, it tells the stories of many of the kings of Israel in that day and age. There were, when the Israelites, when David brought the kingdom together in approximately, I think it was 930 or 970 BC, when he brought the kingdom together, when he passed away, eventually the kingdom split. So there was Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And both sides went through a long period, about 400 years, of 20 kings apiece. And the book of First and Second Kings tells the story of all of those kings. And it always says, whenever you open to a new king, it would say something like, King Ahab was, did not walk, into, did not walk in the ways of his father. Or they still sacrificed in high places. So the details that they tell about the kings actually tell the story of their lives. With King Solomon, who was the first king after David, the writer of 1 Kings slows down and gives us great detail on King Solomon. It says that King Solomon, I'm just going to summarize because last week we were in chapter 3. Today we're in chapter 6, so I need to close the gap on 4 and 5. King Solomon, it says, loves, loved the Lord, right? But he also had alliances with other kings to promote peace, right? It says he, was, he, he tried, he was doing his absolute best to care for the Lord, but, uh, to care for his people. It also said he, uses, he used slave labor to build the temple, which we're going to talk about today. It says he was very organized. Solomon is presented in Scripture as a very complex person, much like all of us. He is righteous, yet sinful. He is humble and insecure. He's a rule follower, but simultaneously a rule breaker. His name in Hebrew, Shlomo, comes from the, comes from the word shalom, which is a Hebrew word for peace, both inward and outward peace. Solomon's reign over Israel was very, very, very peaceful. There were no major wars during his time as king. That's one of the details that it gives us. Solomon's name, Shalom or Shlomo, points us towards a coming king who is the prince of peace forever. The story of Solomon is that one commentator says, the story of Solomon is a perfect example of the brilliant subtlety of the biblical authors. Instead of coming out and saying, so-and-so was really amazing, and they did everything right in the eyes of the Lord, more often they simply present you with the choices of a biblical character and then show you the outcome. Instead of wrapping it up in a tidy moral summary, you are left to ponder and reflect on what was good in the character and what was lacking. In chapter 3 of 1 Kings, Solomon prays to God for wisdom. We talked about that last week. And God gives him wisdom. And because he was unselfish in his request for wisdom, God gives him even more. In chapter 4, the writers, actually chapter 4 is probably one of my favorite chapters, right? The writers share Solomon's wisdom and versatility. He says Solomon was tremendously well-organized. God gives him riches and the gift for organization and administration. He wrote over 3,000 proverbs. Proverbs are general sayings that are applicable to life and true. He wrote over a thousand songs. He had knowledge, chapter 4 says, <laughs> about trees, about animals, about birds, reptiles, fish. 
seems like insignificant detail. People came, the Bible says, from all over to hear Solomon talk. But Solomon, on the other hand, also used slave labor to build the temple. He drafted 30,000 men to, to, to build the temples forcefully. He made alliances with the neighbors by marrying their daughters to achieve peace. Solomon was imperfect, but he is the one who points forward to a future king who will lack nothing, who would bring true peace and true shalom. As we engage and learn about Solomon and the temple, we are looking at what the author wants to help us discover, the description of a man deeply flawed, yet the Bible says he loves the Lord. As we observe, interpret, and apply his life to ours, we can find some ideals that are prescriptive for us to adhere to, but also descriptive as a, of us as humans. At some points, you will admire Solomon, and at some points, he will make you scratch your head. Chapter 6 of 1 Kings is where we are, if you want to join me this morning. If you're there, say amen. It's kind of cold on here, but don't let that get to your heart now. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vegetable in, in front of the, of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows and recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad, and the middle one was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order, to, in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house, the temple. By reading it, you can kind of sense, if you keep going, it is very extravagant. Why the extravagance? Let me put cubits into feet and inches for you because we are Americans and we live in 2020, 2022. Oh, somebody's stuck in the past. <laughs> The temple was about 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet high inside. There was a portico, like a porch, on the outside that was 30 feet wide in the front of the temple. Side rooms where they were built, they built side rooms so that the priests could use those for storage and high narrow windows on the sides. The inside were stone walls partially covered with cedar wood that were beautiful also, they were beautiful but also helped to keep the place cool. The walls were covered in gold. And there were cravings of there were carvings of palm trees, cherubim. Cherubim are like winged angels. Cedar wood was also used to create a partition to separate the holy place, the most holy place in the temple, from the rest of the temple. In this room, the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant that God had instructed Moses to build 480 years prior, was also housed in that box that was kept in the holy of holies, in the holiest room in the in the, in the temple, were the two stone tablets 
that God had inscribed or told Moses to inscribe the Ten Commandments for his people. Upon completion, ladies and gentlemen, the temple was very impressive. Now, <laughs> I forgive you. If you started thinking about lunch, you started zoning out. I know there's an NFL game coming today. I know your kids are somewhere. You're thinking, you started, Marcus, man, you got to do me a solid here. Break it down to me, right? Don't raise your hand. Just go ahead and blink your eyes. You know, man, I'm struggling right now, right? <laughs> I'm struggling. I know. I know. If you've checked out and you started to think about different things, I need you to pull yourself in. Tomorrow's deadlines will be there, right? Stuff that's due is going to be there. I know the college kids will be stuff due tomorrow, right? If you're having this conflict on the inside, let's get down to it, right? If you're having this, this kind of mental seesaw that says, I should care about this. It's God's word. But I don't understand. If you're having a seesaw that says, here we go again, preacher talking, preacher language. Marcus is talking something I don't understand, right? Just stay with me. If that's you this morning, here's your lifeline. Here's something you can be pondering as I'm, as I'm speaking to you this morning. Why did the author include this? With the limited space that they had to write, why did the writer choose to include all of these details of this building in King Solomon's kind of biography? I wouldn't ask myself, why am I bored? But I would ask myself, why is this here? I will take it further, ladies and gentlemen, this morning. What does this say? What does this passage say about God? What does it say about us? Why such extravagance to build a temple? Why does Solomon take such time to build this building for God? You can have simplistic answers to this question, but it's much more, a little bit more complex than that. The architecture, the workmanship represented, it represented man's best. The architecture of this building represented man's best. The trees, the gold walls. Here, all of this represents what man can do in their craft to offer God in the best way. The temple is where heaven meets earth. It's where God will dwell amongst his people. This goes back, stay with me, this goes back to the Garden of Eden, where God creates his best. And he, 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 he creates human beings and nature and says, this is good. In that garden, God dwelled with man. The temple is Solomon's attempt to create a place as pure and as clean so that God can dwell. This represents his best effort, his best offer to God, where the best of God the cedar trees, the gold, what God has put in the earth, and the best of human skill meets God's gifts. This temple also looks back at the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a sacred tent that the Israelites built when they first were set free from slavery in Egypt, and they still had those tablets, and it was carried in the Ark of the Covenant. They would build a Holy of Holies wherever they settled because they were on the move for 40 years. The design of the tabernacle and the temple are almost the same. According to, according to Exodus chapter 27, 
the most sacred places of the temple were where God, where God and the priests would meet. The sick people, not anybody could go into the sacred sacred. This is the place that God wants to meet us. Michael, can you throw that timeline up there? This is a rough timeline of what I'm trying to say, right? The Garden of Eden, by the way, if you're an engineer in here, forgive me, this is not directly proportional. <laughs> okay, the timeline doesn't add up. I know that, that, yeah. But this is a rough, rough sketch of where in history we are, right? The Garden of Eden, when, when the tabernacle was built by Moses in approximately 1440, 480 years later, Solomon creates the temple, and it will move forward through the morning through the rest of this. The temple that Solomon built is great. But I want to walk through this passage when you look and, and think through the two questions I asked. I asked many questions, I know that. But one of the questions I asked was, what does it say? Let's start with, what does it say about us? What does this passage, Solomon's life and, and, and the, the tabernacle and the temple say about us? It says this. Despite our best efforts, we are severely incapable of closing the gap between God's holiness and our human beingness, if you will. Solomon builds this great temple. This is his offer to God. He said, God, I'm going to create a place for you to dwell amongst the people, and I want to give you my absolute best. I want everybody who works on this temple to give their best so that you can see that we want you to dwell among us. But as we know, we are marred by sin, whether it's personal sin or systemic sin, or even, even in our gifts and talents, where still our sinful nature still sometimes go ahead, goes ahead of us. Our best is still not good enough. There is still a gap between God and the people of the earth, despite what we try to create. Isaiah 64 says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. This week in our search, in our search table, we had an assignment to read five newspaper articles and imagine stories of eternity. So what I did this week, right, to prepare for the assignment, I was reading just five random newspaper articles. Have you tried that lately? Man, is it tough. Just to get through one, two, three articles, this person's dead. This is happening. This is crashing down. This is, this is, it just seems as though anywhere we turn, everywhere we turn, we see the acts of sin or we see the handprints of sin in, in, in a lot of places. I didn't get too far in those articles before depression and a sense of feeling overwhelmed and hopeless took over. There is sin everywhere. In our acts, in our thoughts, in the things we create, our systems, our technology, right? I read, like I said, I read four articles. The first article was about kids falling behind in reading. I read another article about cleaning the Pacific Ocean, about overfishing, about pollution, about our efforts to live more sustainably. It just seems like we're fighting against something that just slowly is just taking over. We can't seem to get ahead. Our efforts are not futile. But there are clear indications that our world isn't what it's supposed to be despite our best efforts, and we deep down yearn for more. Solomon builds a beautiful temple, 
and in the, in the presence of, and ask the presence of the Lord to come and dwell in it. But, but, he uses slave labor to do that, to gather the trees, to gather the workers. This beautiful temple on one hand, slave labor to build it on the other hand. I don't know where you've been, but sometimes it seems as though human creativity and the beauty that we create still has the handprints, right? When technology is, is beautiful, it's great, and we use it for certain things, but then sometimes people just come in there and do some other stuff. Cars for transportation, we see the, the side effects of that. Before you look sideways at Solomon, let's look inward real quick. Can I get up on your couch a little bit this morning? Think of your own house. How did it get built? Think of our country. How did it get built? Think of the car you drive, your clothes, your shoes. It can get overwhelming and hopeless to think of what you have to do to make a difference or just to live. How can I live purely and create a life pleasing to God? It's a very good thought. Here's what that thought can lead to, if you follow me here. It can lead to a humanist trap. Here's what I mean. Our world has two routes, two directions. Um, and how to, how to look at hopelessness in our world, how to look at change in our world. We have two ways. One road says we can do it if everyone would pull in the same direction. The world can be a better place in our own power. If everyone were to agree that we need to be unselfish as human beings, if we're all pulling in the same direction, we can actually change the place. If there were no selfish people, there were no greedy people, we could actually get things done. That's one way to look at it. Last summer, I'm really going to get on your couch right now. Um, last summer, I traveled back to Liberia. My brother passed away. We know the story. Um, and and it's, the, you know, it's 2021. It's the height of COVID. It's spreading all over the world. And I can't tell you how many COVID tests I took. I went from here to New Jersey, to Belgium, to Paris, to, to, to Sierra Leone. To, I'm taking COVID tests. It seems like every flight I got down, somebody was shoving something up my nose. <laughs> and I get to Liberia, and I'm sitting amongst my family members. And they're telling me, you know, you know everybody's wearing their masks, you know, it's a funeral. And I asked, this is July of 2021. I asked, how many people in Liberia have gotten a COVID vaccine. Regardless of how you feel about vaccines, I'm gonna say this. In July of 2021, we had had the vaccine in this country for months. Only 25 human beings in that country had gotten vaccinated, 25. So obviously, we want the vaccine. We want what's best for us. We gotta take care of each other. But I want you to see the brokenness of the world that we tried to, we tried. Right? You're trying to get the vaccine to everybody, but the people who have money, people who have power, have more of a sense to get that. You understand? It's not like it's something is wrong with the United States for doing this, but we have to protect us. You see what I'm saying? So when we, when we get in the trap of saying, 
if we can just get rid of all the selfish people, it doesn't quite add up. It doesn't work. Do you follow what I'm saying this morning? We are powerful, but we could not evenly distribute something that could save lives all over, all over the planet. I knew we were in trouble in Africa when they said the vaccines had to be, it had to be really cold. I knew that was going to be a problem <laughs> because cold weather is not a thing. The second way we look at the world is the other well, kind of well-worn path that humans look at and say, how can we fix the world? Is, is we, we get a sense of hopelessness and, we, and hopelessness takes over. We say, it is all messed up. There is no hope. Just live. We can't fix the hopelessness. We can't fix our schools. We can't do anything about crime. It just seems like the wave after wave is coming. We just live and influence those around you. Live and get yours and prep for heaven. We have that crowd. Crowd that says, man, I'm going to do my best. Me and the Lord are good. I'm going to move out of this place where there's all this crime. I can't handle it. It's going to take over anyway. I'm going to heaven and I'm moving on. Forget the poor, the imprisoned. Let's move away from them. Both these camps, both these thoughts are actually within the church. They're not outside of unbelievers. They're right here in this room. I didn't hear amen, but I'm going to keep going. If you're starting to feel the hopelessness and the helplessness, let me assure you there is an incredible third way. There is an incredible third way. There is a God who is naturally supernatural, who is beautifully engaged, who is thoroughly thoughtful, who is way more than we can ever ask or imagine, who yearns to make things right. I told you the story about peacekeepers coming to rescue us, right? They could have sat back and watched just my country just disintegrate and people would have lost their lives. But it takes people who are, who are, who are wanting to, make, to see the kingdom of God come little by little, whether they know it or not, to make a difference in our world. We can't just sit on our hands and watch things just go. What does it say about God? This passage is saying something about us. Like I, I will recap real quick. That's that despite our best efforts, there's still sin amongst the things that we do, the things that we create. But it won't always be that way is the good news. It won't always be that way. What does this passage say about God? The God of Solomon, the God of Israel, right? What does God require? What does he require? Verses 11 through 13. This is in the middle of Solomon building the temple. He's creating this extravagant temple. And, and he says, the, word of the, the writer says, Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all of my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. God is saying, go ahead, build that temple. It's good. Here's what I require. Here's what I require. As Solomon is building this great temple that for God to dwell in, right? And, and he said, this is the one good thing that I'm going to do. This is my best work. This is my work. He hopes God, I hope Solomon says, God, I hope you're pleased with this. 
God says, okay, here's what I want for you to do. Here's what I really require. Walk in my statutes, obey my rules, keep the commandments, and I will establish my word with you. Shortly, obedience is better than sacrifice. Micah, six, six, Micah chapter 6, verse 8 puts, this, puts it this way. It says, and what does God require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Some of us in this room are building temples for God. Some of you symbolically, symbolically or literally in, the, in areas of your lives, you're thinking that what you're thinking, this is what God wants me to do. You're building something for God, but you're not being obedient to God. Amen? In a world that is just corrupted by sin, what we do for God is always staying, staying with sin. They are good things, but our hopes cannot be in what we do for God because this is not what God requires. I remember when we left the war, we were out. I was so grateful. I don't know if you make these promises. Maybe that was me as an 11-year-old. Like, God, if you get me out of this jam, I promise you I'm going to walk in. I'm going to do everything you want. I'm going to be out there passing out tracks. Back then it was tracks, right? I'm going to be, I'm going to go to Awana. I'm going to go to church every week. I'm going to do this, do that. Because I was so desperate. I was so desperate. I hadn't eaten two meals in one day in a year. I was so desperate. The fear, my, I don't know what the, what the science is. Somebody here knows brain science. But my mind was just on high alert for death all of the time for one year. So when, that, when I got on that boat to leave Liberia and we started leaving, I thought, oh, there will be no more gunshots. I will, that's not, well, <laughs> there will be no more gunshots. We're going to a peaceful place. I was making all these promises. Lord, I'm telling you right now, when we get there, I'm gonna, first I'm going to eat, right? I'm going to eat some good food. And then I'm not going to walk away from you. But how short-lived was that? How short-lived are those promises that you make to God in desperate moments? What God requires of us is just obedience to things. Just obedience. A guy I know was adopted. He was adopted. He and all his siblings were taken, from, were take, were taken in by this older couple. Uh, they were, they were, I think there were seven of them. This couple took them all in, and they, they raised them. And they all, some of them had health issues and things like that, but this family loved them. They were, they were tough kids. They were in a tough neighborhood. They were just, just north of Miami. He said, man, it was, it was rough. The, there was crime. There was everything. But this older couple took these kids in in a rough area, and they said, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna care for you. In one of the most crime-ridden neighborhoods in the city of Miami. He worked, he, this young man worked his way through school, did the best he could, and when he got older, he became a successful businessman, and he was traveling and speaking to hundreds of people at a time. He wanted to, he, he, at some point he says, you know what, I want to give back to my mom. That's right. I want to do something to bless my mother. He felt as if he owed her something. His father, the, the man who adopted him had passed away, so he's with his adopted mom, and she's struggling with her health. She said, he said, I want to do something for my mom. She had given me her all, and I'm going to give her my all. So he bought her this huge house. He and her lived in the house, and she was living upstairs, and he was downstairs, and, and, and time got tough on him. 
Business wasn't so good. In fact, business was so bad he was going to lose the house that he had bought his mom, who had cared for him. He says, I was downstairs. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm pacing back and forth and, and crying, tears in my eyes. My mother's upstairs. What am I going to do? We're going to lose the house. His mom came downstairs. He said, I hear you pacing downstairs. What's going on? He said, Mom, I want to tell you the blessing that I want to give you, I'm going to lose. We're going to lose the house. And she said this to him. She said, I never liked the house anyway. <laughs> I got arthritis in my knees, and I don't like climbing up these stairs. Go ahead and get rid of this house. For all she had done, she said, we're going to move back into that old neighborhood that we came out of, and we'll make a difference there. Sometimes what we think God wants from us, it's not, a, it's not a payback situation. God has done for you what you cannot pay back. Somebody in here needs to hear that this morning. God has done something for us that we cannot pay back. I'll tell you how many times I would think about those peacekeepers, so some of them lost their lives in the country they gave their lives. They didn't have to come to our country, right? I, I feel like I owe those people something. Sometimes I feel like I owe God something. Because some of the places I've been, some of the places I came from, I feel like God brought me some places. Maybe you feel that way too. You don't, oh, you cannot possibly give God more. You can, Solomon built this great temple with gold and everything else. He's trying to, trying to give the Lord something. Here is the great news. Here is the great news. Jesus, we got to pick this up this morning. Jesus is a true king. He is the bridge. He is the connection from the Garden of Eden to the tabernacle, to Solomon's temple, and he is the one that God sent to dwell among us, not in a temple, but actually among us. This is why God sent him to the earth so he can be with us. Because Solomon's temple, believe it or not, was destroyed in 586 after he built it 400 years. Jesus is the one true temple who will not be destroyed, who could not be destroyed. As we look back, you will see that Jesus fulfilled all of the promises that God had given to Adam and Eve in the garden, and he's key, he keeps on fulfilling them as we go forward in history. The new heavens and the new earth. Solomon's name, like I said in the beginning, is peace. Jesus is the true peacemaker. Make that connection. He brings everlasting peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding, Jesus is the greatest peacemaker. Jesus, is, he, he, Jesus does not make any alliances with anybody but the Holy Spirit and God the Father. We will serve him willingly, not as slaves, with our best talents and our gifts, and he will be just the greatest gift that God has given us. He will be, and he is the greatest gift. We will live with Jesus in a place that we cannot ever imagine where there will be no disease, where there will be no tears, no broken systems. I yearn for that. Can you imagine, imagine a place, not exactly like the temple, but all of our creativity, all the blessings that God has given us, all the gifts and talents that you and I have used for good. Nothing will go astray. Some of us have great talents and creativity. Imagine a place where we all are using our gifts and there's no negativity attached to it. It's a beautiful thought. Imagine 
the new heavens and the new earth. You are walking side by side with a brother or sister who is gifted in certain things that God has given them, but there's no negativity attached to it, right? We create something and it just goes. It's beautiful. I always think of, <laughs> this is such a sad, a funny thought, but I, I always think of this. We created cars, and cars are great. They transport us from place to place, but what cars requires actually hurts us, right? We put all this asphalt down. This is my mind working here. I always think, do you know how many blades of grass are underneath all this asphalt trying to get out and claustrophobic? <laughs> I always think, like, well, all the things that we create, sometimes it has, it has a negative consequence. There will be shalom, that which our hearts are longing for. If you are here and this sermon is connected with you and you're longing for shalom, right, I hope you're not feeling hopeless right now. There will be prayer people in the back to pray with you. There are pieces, there are pieces of shalom that we bring to our workplace Shalom that we don't always have to wait. We don't have to wait till we get to the new heavens and new earth. We can actually bring pieces of shalom to God, to this earth. If you're like me, you no longer want to open a newspaper and read. Imagine opening a newspaper and just reading good news. To experience the goodness of God and humans. You don't have to wait. That's why we're here. Christians. The salt of the earth making a difference in where you are, not just in a holding pen waiting for heaven to bring shalom to our places, right? Not just for the salvation of our personal lives, but to actually see God making a difference throughout. God requires our obedience, and our obedience requires us to go out into the world and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Will you bow your heads with me? Thank you, gracious Heavenly Father. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. God, I pray that your word is sunk into someone's heart this morning. God does not require the things that we do, the things that we have, the things that we make. It requires our obedience. May we endeavor to walk with God and have him show us what we need. Heavenly Father, we surrender all the things that we do to you, all the beauty in the world to you. In Jesus' name, amen.